Well, is it warm in here or what? <laughs> uh, actually, who's thankful that it's warm in here? The furnaces have not worked all week. Uh, and were it not for a building and warm air and warm water, many and Zen, we would be down at the lakefront promenade wading into water that's, what, 42 degrees this time of year? We're talking today about facilities, and uh, I know we have a number of guests and newcomers here, and that's going to sound like a strange topic, and I'll admit that this is the first time in 10 years of being here that we've ever stopped to talk about that. But if you notice the strange decorations on the stage, these four pillars are meant to represent four strategic themes that will drive the mission and mandate of our church as we rethink and rediscover ourselves for a new generation. The last one there, it says in very small italicized print, is unleashing the power of our facilities. This is Remembrance Day weekend. I want to take you back to a moment at the height of World War II. I want you to imagine that you were there in the middle of the United Kingdom in the blown out remains of the British House of Commons as the remnants of the British Parliament met met together to consider how and when and where they ought to rebuild. And it was at that moment that the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill at the time, rose to speak, and he began his speech with what have now become the classic statement about the importance of our buildings. He said, we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. He went on to argue that the shape and size of a room are integral to how you function inside of it. He contended that in the case of the parliament, a smaller room was necessary if they wanted to maintain their conversational way of doing business. What a pleasant idea for how to govern a country, a conversational way of doing business. He wanted a small room because he thought it inevitably made discussions more intimate and more personal. But his basic insight was simply this, that the physical environment that we create has a subtle way of affecting the ways that we act. In fact, it's so subtle that sometimes we don't even notice it consciously. There's a theologian that I I read during the course of the week who put it just in a different way. He said that a building, facilities, can be an incubator for the practices that shape us into certain kinds of people. Let's think about a few examples. How many of you have traveled a little bit in Europe? Have you been to any of those great medieval cathedrals, Westminster Abbey, Notre Dame? Have you had that experience of standing inside those buildings, just feeling small, but, but feeling that this is just such a jaw-droppingly beautiful... Have you had that feeling? I never have. I've never been there. <laughs> but I've seen pictures. <laughs> and I know what was in the mind of the architects. They wanted to design something that was so majestic that it would elevate the eyes and the aspirations of people beyond the horizons of everyday life. They wanted the place to feel sacred. They wanted through artwork and stained glass and images to tell the story of the gospel as they, uh, as they filled those buildings with visual reminders of what that was about. And, and that, that architecture, that shape, makes certain forms of gathering more plausible than others. 
Palestrina's Masses, who you're saying, one of the great writers of the medieval church, or even Bach. People still talk about Bach, Rochelle. Bach's great cantatas. They, they, they reach their soaring height inside places like St. Peter's Basilica. But a praise band with drums would be an acoustic nightmare. Can you imagine Jeff just trying to mix sound in a place like that? Now, let's, let's jump ahead through the centuries, and I want you to imagine for a second uh, the typical suburban landscape in North America. There's a four- or a six-lane arterial road. It's punctuated by stoplights, big, blo- uh, big box shopping plazas, multiplex cinemas, patches of landscaping, a barrage of signs, and everywhere you look, plenty of parking. Now picture a church created in the latter half of the 20th century or the early 21st century as part of that landscape. It's a prefabricated, windowless worship center. And inside the auditorium is a brightly lit stage and a carefully darkened auditorium. And surrounding it is a sea of parking. What it is is a combination of big, big box re- retailers and multiplex cinemas. And the culture that gives rise to that kind of a building is deeply privatized. That's why we like to sit in the dark. We can be anonymous. It is consumer-driven. That's why there's a bunch of them. You can pick and choose among them. And is amusement-oriented. The worship and ministry that are based in those facilities has understood and responded to that culture, and some of those have been hugely successful. So listen, I'm I'm not trying to argue for one or the other. I'm just noting how those buildings both are shaped by the culture that created them, and then in turn they give shape to the culture that meets inside of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Buildings and other, uh, other forms of the facilities that we occupy, they're not absolute determinators of our behavior but they do make certain forms of life more plausible. And so when we come to talk about facilities, we need to have a conversation that's theologically informed, and we're going to spend a little bit of time and do a quick Bible study on that, but that's artistically compelling. Creativity is is our mirror of God who we recognize as the creator. Artistically compelling, technologically astute, current, relevant, when you present to the community who walk past the building a towering brick wall, it says one thing. When you present to them a glass-faced edifice with a cafe and a welcome sign, it says another. Right? We need buildings that are theologically informed, artistically compelling, technologically astute, and relevant. So how do we build them? How do we build something that's God-honoring and, and community-focused and it will serve as a platform for ministry in the 21st century. Let's, uh, let's begin by recognizing one thing that is really, really very important. The church is a body of believers. It's not a building. I mean, we said this a couple of weeks ago. That question, where do you go to church, is a question that would have made absolutely no sense to those early followers of Jesus. Because for them, church was never a place that you went. It was the people that you belonged to. That was the church. And somehow, over the course of the centuries, that idea got lost, got buried under a lot of concrete, as it were. But there was a group of people. They were meeting in New England. 
They, they went by the name of the Puritans, if you've ever read that as a student of history. These New England Puritans understood that, that their buildings themselves were not sacred. There's nothing sacred about the paint color on the wall or the lamp that lights up the room or the roof that shields them from rain. That wasn't sacred. They called their buildings. Does anybody know what the Puritans called their buildings? This is going to strike a chord of familiarity. They were called meeting houses. If you ever wonder where that came from, the meeting house is a recognition that our buildings, our facilities are important, but they are not sacred. And in saying that, they were offering a view that served kind of as a counterpoint to centuries of architecture that was designed explicitly, explicitly to feel sacred. One of the byproducts of history, the, the history around the time of the Reformation, was a movement within Protestantism that went and whitewashed all the churches that removed all of the sacred art and architecture of their predecessors. And what they were left with was this very utilitarian thing. And and people have been crying out for an experience of of beauty uh, in the midst of these kind of just plain and and less appointed buildings. But it need not be so. Uh, Let me say, uh, I'm not an anti-building guy. Uh, because people have bodies, we need buildings. Have a look around you. Have a look at the person next to you. They have a body, right? Don't say anything about it. We don't want to get any harassment suits going on. But people have bodies, and because people have bodies, we need buildings. Facilities matter. Facilities are a tool that enables ministry. Impressions matter. People will form their impressions of the work that we do within the first five minutes of their arriving here. They'll make judgments about the state of the parking lot, about how clean the hallway is. If they go into the nursery and they see the lights are dark and there's no one there, they will assume that babies don't matter to us. If they go downstairs and they see rooms that are a ramshackle mess, And teachers that aren't ready for the kids that are coming down to meet them, they'll assume that kids are not important to us. Neither one of those things are true. But people's impressions are formed very quickly. Long before the first person stands on a stage and speaks the first word, impressions have already been formed. Architecture speaks and facilities matter. In most North American contexts, our buildings have been effective tools for reaching a community for the past century. But more and more, they're less and less effective in doing that because they were built and shaped by a culture that doesn't exist in order to reach a culture that no longer exists. Because I'm not an anti-building guy, doesn't necessarily mean I'm a fan of these large, vaunted, elaborate campus sites. Uh, Just because I wonder sometimes, have you ever been in a big old building for worship that now stands largely empty? Built to seat a capacity of 2,000 and now there's 100 and you just kind of feel an anguish. I mean, God obviously did something a long time ago. Why isn't he doing it now? But facilities matter. And I I don't think we have to decide that 
that in order to build something that's effective here, we have to set aside causes that matter. Yes, a brick here might cost 10 times more than a meal over there where somebody needs it. But if you think only like that, you begin to generate an idea that somehow God must be short of money. This is not the God who divided five loaves and two fishes and fed the crowds. Because you can do both. And you should do both. Because the work that's done here and the work that's done there are both important. I don't think facilities need to be lavish. They don't need to be ornate. But they should be functional. They should be an enabler, not a bottleneck to ministry. What does it mean to say that we run great events but they're downstairs and we have no elevator or no chairlift or no way for people who have some sort of limitation to get there. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that the only way that we can host groups of family and friends and community parties is by renting outside facilities? What does that mean? The fact that you got parking when you arrived and you were sitting here this morning is made possible by the fact that there's a group that came here much earlier than you did and sat down, and there'll be groups that arrive after you leave throughout the rest of the course of the day. That's a good thing. We're maximizing the use of the facility. But could there be something different? Could there be something more? Again, it doesn't have to be ornate. It doesn't have to be lavish. In fact, it probably would be dangerous if it were so. For... For this generation, it's called the Bono effect. Hands up if you have no idea who Bono is. Be honest. Okay? You're old. (laughs) Yeah, you're old. Lead singer of U2, one of the most popular bands of the past 40 years. Bono became an advocate for humanitarian causes around the world. And the Bono effect was used to give voice to this sense of angst among the younger generation who asked why so much money was being spent on houses of worship when so many people around the world were suffering. It can be functional without being lavish. God is certainly glorified through architecture, but the divine beauty of the church is not in the buildings it inhabits, but is in the Christ-likeness of its people. That's the real beauty of the church. When a church outgrows its space, as it kind of feels like we have been over the past years, leaders face a choice. What do you do? You can multiply services, and we've been doing that. There are four services every Sunday, sometimes five. You can build a bigger building. You can plant or replant new churches. Often it's a combination of more than one of those things. Uh, But whatever it is that we do, this pillar is meant to remind us that that over the course of the next year, we're going to invite you to pray, 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 discern, 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 and think about what God might have for us next. However we resolve the question, renovate, rebuild, relocate, replant, it's important to remember that God indwells not his building but his people. And this is where we're going to leap into just a a mini Bible study for for about five minutes. In Acts chapter 7, verse 49, here's the position. Our God, this is Stephen speaking, our God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. But often we think of our buildings kind of like temples. There's something sacred about it. My grandfather and his generation would be aghast 
to think that in this house of worship, we would show a movie on a Friday night. Even if it was a Christian movie, which was a contradiction in terms for him. There was no such thing. Uh, that, That we would set aside the chairs and serve meals here to 50 or 60 seniors on a Wednesday. Because this was sacred space for them. We think of our buildings like temples. Good facilities provide the space for a sacred encounter, but they are not sacred in themselves. And that understanding goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. Let me show you how. Flip open your Bibles and start leafing through the Genesis account of how God creates the heavens and the earth. And you remember the broad strokes of the account? Seven days, seven stages of creation. I don't want to hijack the discussion into that. How long ago was it? How long were the days? But seven stages of creation. And if you were reading that account as one of the very early readers, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, what was being said there would be absolutely clear to you that this is the account of the building of a temple. The very most important day in the seven-day, seven-stage account of creation was, guess which? Day seven. And do you know why? This would have been crystal clear for those readers. That was the day that God came to rest in his creation. Seven days. The first six stages, God is creating space. He's dividing this, he's separating that, he's creating the space. The next three days, he's filling the space with good things, things that reflect the creativity and the variety and the beauty of God. And when he's all done, it says on day seven, he came to rest in his creation. When God rests someplace, that's a temple. That's the language of the temple. When God inhabits something, isn't that what people always meant by a temple? You go there to meet God. What does it mean to say that all creation is the temple of God? It means that the building's not sacred. The world is sacred. That's why Christians who are committed to causes that uphold the dignity and worth of the world are being faithful to Scripture. This understanding is, is the grounding of the next stage, of the next evolution of what our buildings mean. Israel's wandering around. They wandered a lot. Have you ever read most of the Old Testament? It's like a bad Lord of the Rings movie. They just spend all their time walking, walking, walking. They're wandering. So what they needed was a portable building. And they had one. It was called the tabernacle. And there are elaborate descriptions about how it is to be constructed. A series of stages. Guess what? The first stages, you're creating spaces. And then the next stages, you're filling those spaces. What are you filling them with? You're filling them with things that remind you of creation. Light, water, art that depicts the grandeur of creation. And then in the final stage, in worship, you celebrate the fact that God rests there. If creation is the temple of God... The tabernacle, which becomes eventually the temple, is a reminder that, 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 that creation itself is represented in these things. I don't know if that makes sense. Creation is the temple. Temple points to creation. It kind of goes backwards and forwards. Now, let's just mention Nehemiah. Because 
many of you are meeting in Bible study through the course of the week and you're studying Nehemiah. Uh, and you know that uh, the story of Nehemiah begins with the broken heart of this man, Nehemiah, and it starts, uh, engenders this, this prayer crusade, and then a clear plan, a strategy, and then mobilizing armies of workers to do what? What are they doing? Rebuilding the walls of? Why is that important? What's Jerusalem? The home of? The temple. Yeah, which in their minds, that's, that's where God has come to rest. And as goes the temple, so goes the mood of God's people. The temple was in ruins. The city was in ruins. So was their outlook on life. So was their relationship with each other. So was their understanding of God. And they thought if we could do something to turn this around. That's what Nehemiah is about. It's about creating again the space that reminds people that creation is fully inhabited by the presence of God. Now, let's jump ahead. Let's look at the New Testament, and then my five minutes are up. (laughs) When have I ever held to the five-minute rule? In the New Testament, all the language around the temple comes to be associated with one person. Guess who? Jesus, right. Jesus always seems like it's the right answer in the church until it's not. Well, it is this time. The New Testament, the temple language comes to be associated with Jesus. Let me show you a couple of places. In the Gospel of John, In chapter 2, in verse 19, this is Jesus talking. And he says, and this must have sounded really perplexing. He says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jewish people said, listen, we've been building this temple now for 46 years. And you think that it can be destroyed and you'll put it back together in three days? But he wasn't speaking about the building. What was he speaking about? His body, himself. What's a temple? It's the place where God rests, where God is fully present. God was fully present in the world in Jesus. Jesus, if you like, is the gateway to God. Bruxy Cavey said he's the gateway drug to God and got in lots of trouble for putting it that way. So let's just say he's the gateway to God. And everything the temple was meant to represent culminates in Jesus. These beautiful words, Colossians 1. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things heaven and on earth were created, things that are visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers. It's all been created through him and for him. What used to be a place now becomes a person. That's why it's so important in any conversation about facilities to say it's in the name of and for the sake of, and under the leadership of Jesus. Because the bricks and mortar aren't sacred, but his presence in a community surely is. In the very last stage of the evolution of this understanding of buildings, facilities, temple, if you'd like, is the identity that is given to Jesus' followers, to his people, to you. Have a look now at 1 Peter in chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Peter says, Come to him a living stone, even though rejected by other mortals, chosen and precious in God's sight. You are like living stones. You're being built together into a spiritual house. Notice what's sacred. It's, it's not the bricks. It's the people, living stones. To be a what? A holy a holy priest.
priesthood. To be a holy priesthood. To offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through, through Jesus. Where do the priests work? In the temple. The new identity given to God's people. He says it again in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. How many of you think of yourself like priests? Not me. But if, if you understand that the priest's job is to serve the purposes of God in the temple. And if you understand that the temple really is God inhabiting all of his creation, the fullest expression of, of that is in Jesus, then to be a priest means to follow in lockstep rhythm with Jesus into the world that he loves, recognizing that you will never put your eyes on a person in the course of your life who is not also uniquely created and loved and endowed by God, and you are invited to be a priestly presence in their life. Well, I think we better wrap it up. (laughs) Facilities matter. People matter more. Whatever else we may be doing here in the years ahead, we are building a temple, not made of bricks and mortar, made with living stones, God's precious people, redeemed, sought out, bought back, never to be forsaken. And we are called to be priests in that endeavor. And every good tool that we can place in your hands that allows you to do that effectively is worth the investment, including this, including the facilities we share. So let me close just by inviting you to do four things over the next few years. Pray all that you can. Give what you can. Dream big with us. And build well. And God will be honored and he will rest in the lives of his people. Let's pray. God, save us from visions for the future that are just too small, too limited. Uh, Not enough of you in them and too much of us in our own fears. Allow us to dream big and risk boldly with the confidence that we serve a God for whom nothing is impossible. Balance our dreams, God, with, with a care for this community and a desire to serve them well with a deep appreciation for the creativity and artistry that has always shaped your people and your creation, and with a desire to be faithful in following a vision for your creation that sees everyone endowed with worth and dignity and value and everything that we do done for their sake. For these reasons, we live, we give, and we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.